Hello listeners. Now, you might think that when talking about the classics of literature, we need to be sober-minded, unfailingly polite, and deadly serious. But I could not fucking disagree more. I would much rather have fun. I'd rather that classic literature raises questions like this. Is food porn awesome? Is morality annoying? Does a good story need to have a plot which makes sense? And most importantly, what's going on in the subconscious mind of the Monkey King? Well, we've got an episode that aims to answer all these and many other questions, and I will not be doing this alone. I'll be doing this quite the opposite of alone because this is a mega crossover episode. We've got a small army of um, other podcasters who cover Chinese literature and culture uh, lined up over this episode and the next two. Here, here's how it's going to work. Um, so I assembled this uh, small army of podcasters and I was planning to have everyone in one episode, but there just would have been too many of us. The call would have had to have lasted hours and hours and hours. So I've broken us into two halves. Um, we each chose a story to discuss and it just worked out nicely that half of us had picked uh, stories from like dynastic China and the other half had picked stuff from like modern China, 20th century onwards. So for this episode, we're doing the classic stories. Next episode, we're doing the modern stories. And then the one after that, we're just going to have a big sort of um, party or, you know, Zoom hangout session, something like that, because it's going to be the 50th episode of the show. So I thought it would be good to do something fun. But yeah, that's what is coming up. I won't introduce my guests for this episode just now because they'll be doing it themselves once the interview starts. But before the interview, I'm going to give you the Trotrofic News, the translated Chinese fiction news. So first item, uh, a very exciting book has just been released. It's available to order, certainly in the UK, possibly in other places too, but definitely in the UK. It's Distant Sunflower Fields by Li Juan, uh, translated by Christopher Payne. So um, this book is being distributed by Impress, Impress Books, and it's published by Sinuous Books. So I will just read the blurb for you guys so that you, you know what's going on here. Distant Sunflower Fields. An iron-willed mother, an aging grandmother, a pair of mismatched dogs, and 90 acres of less-than-ideal farmland. These are Li Juan's companions on the steppes of the Gobi Desert. Writing out of a yurt under Xinjiang's endless horizons, she documents her family's quest to extract a bounty of sunflowers amid the harsh beauty and barren expanses of China's northwest frontier. Success must be eked out in the face of life's unnegotiable... Unnegotiable realities, sandstorms, locusts, and death. While this small tribe is held at the mercy of these headwinds, they discover the cheer and dignity hidden in each other. But will their ceaseless labours deliver blooming fields of green and yellow? Or will their dreams prove as distant as they are fragile? So, it's a non-fiction set in Xinjiang. So, pretty interesting. Um, I really do invite you guys to check that book out. I've read it myself, and Li Juan, yeah, Li Juan blew me away. Great book. Definitely not quite what I was expecting either. Might surprise you too. Now, the next piece of news, this is related to our last episode on Beijing Coma. So I uh, believe I said 
during my interview with uh, Ronald that as prep I'd read lots of Magian interviews he sent me and they're always pretty interesting. Uh, certainly quite consistent in their uh, focus and uh, the line Magian takes, as you can imagine. But what I didn't uh, know was that there's uh, quite a new one out from January 31st, uh, a publication called The Wire China put out an interview uh, titled Magian on China's efforts to extinguish memory. Um, so pretty pretty relevant to what me and Ronald were talking about in uh, our discussion of Beijing coma. Um, slight forewarning, you need to register to read this full article. So you, you got to click register on The Wire China. It's free and it gives you like limits, uh, sorry, access to X number of articles per week or something that you can also pay to subscribe and get unlimited access. But yeah, the article is free uh, to read, but you do have to sign up uh, to the site for free. I think I've made that clear enough. Um, the interview itself is, yeah, just consider it like the most up-to-date glimpse of what Magian has got to say, um, including, as you might expect, some stuff about the uh, the coronavirus. So yeah, that's there. There'll be a link to that and to Distant Sunflower Fields uh, on page on Impress Books in the show notes. Um, last piece of terrific news is some meta news, news about the show itself. Um, it's just a repeat of last week's news that I've launched a mailing list. It's a MailChimp one. And I've set it up so that every time I release an episode, an email will be sent out. Um, I'm holding off adding anything kind of of my own creation just yet because we've only got something like 16 people signed up. I'm thinking if 50 people, um, just an arbitrary number, but if 50 people subscribe to the mailing list, then I will um, I will try and regularly put some kind of news or behind the scenes or just thoughts out as a sort of a regular newsletter. But I, yeah, I think if there's not a reasonable number of people signed up, that would be a bit of a waste of my energies. But just another thing to see uh, if, if it'll stick. So yeah, that is the end of the Trichific News. Now it's time for the interview. Let's hear what one half of my massive um, Wenshui army had to say about some classic stories from the world of Chinese literature. You guys know my name, I'm Angus. I'm 27, going to be 28. Not very long from now. Very scared about that. Uh, I did an English undergrad in university, then I went off to China for a year, came back, did not a lot with myself, various small things. So I went back to Shanghai. To, well, at first year I was in a small town actually in Zhejiang called uh, Deqing near Mogansan. Then when I was back in China, I was in just Shanghai for about two and a half years teaching. Uh, then I came back to do a publishing master's. And whilst I was on that, I thought, what can I do that will give me some kind of a niche. And for better or for worse, I jumped into looking at Chinese lit in translation. And I launched a podcast about halfway, this podcast about halfway through the master's degree, did a dissertation on Chinese sci-fi in English translation. And now I'm doing a very badly paid work in publishing and the podcast. What about you guys? I'll go next, I guess. Uh, so I'm, yeah, I'm John Chu. Uh, I think I might be the old man in the group here, um, 41. Uh, Looking good, though. <laughs> thank you. Uh, I'm in uh, North Carolina. Uh, I, I was born in China, and I lived there till I was 10. Uh, I, was, uh, I was in Guangzhou, and then I moved to North Carolina. Uh, so I was a journalist uh, for about six or seven years, and then 
switched gears. And right now I work in communications uh, at Duke. Right now I'm doing the Water Margin podcast. And before that, I did the uh, Three Kingdoms podcast. Ask you a question, John. Do you have any, do you in your work have any communication with the Duke campus in Kunshan, just outside Shanghai? I work in the Duke Graduate School. So our admissions office works with them, um, right. you know, a fair amount because we have a couple of programs, uh, graduate programs based there. Um, I don't have any, I personally don't have any um, really contact with the people there. Uh, some of our communicators actually have like gone over there for, you know, like, five six week stretches when that campus was first getting set up and to help them with their communications operations a little bit and also learning from them seeing their perspective um you know so yeah maybe eventually there will be an opportunity to go <laughs> over there again and see <laughs> yeah but. if you do kunshan has some a crazy like futuristic metal church thing i suggest i mean i don't know if churches interest you but they don't really interest me but that thing is one of the craziest things i've ever seen um and it's not like weird bad chinese architecture it's really good weird <laughs> well futuristic metal church sounds very <laughs> it sounds like the setting of a like a hard yeah. rock music video from like the description right <laughs> yeah you could do that if the weather was like when I was there, it was really sunny. So that's a strange mental, men, yeah, mental image. But if it was a stormy day, yeah, that would be cool. Who wants to go next? I can go next. So uh, my Chinese name is Luo Tianqi, and my English name is you can call me Juliana or you can call me Tianqi. Uh, I am post ninety five. I'm born nineteen ninety five. So. Um, so nowadays, I, I think like people no longer do like decades like Jiu Ling Ho. They they usually do like Jiu Wu Ho or like Ba Wu Ho. Like every five years, it's kind of mm. a group. It's it's how like I guess age is categorized with with the new like generation. I guess um, I just finished my masters in uh, East Asian languages and literature at Columbia. I did pre modern Chinese literature, but. I definitely wasn't like the best students or something, but um, I was, um, I was the, my advisor was Professor Robert Himes. I don't know if any of you in like this field know. Um, and it's funny because he was working on this book uh, for almost like six, seven years now, and he's going to publish it um, as his new big work. And it's about how Black Death uh, was actually originated in China in the i guess tang that's bad timing <laughs> it is. it's really funny because i mean with covid right and um and we joke because i was telling him there's no way that after you publish that book you're gonna be invited by the chinese government to go to china and now he's like you know definitely not going but um i i did my master's thesis on pusongling but I was kind of like slacking off a little bit because I think it's like a kind of easy to topic or thing to write about. Um, and after that, I um, briefly worked at a private school in Lower East Side in Manhattan uh, called Avenues. Uh, and they basically just have all these really rich kids uh, and um, they have two language uh, tracks that they can go from um, preschool all the way to high school so you can take math in Chinese or you can take 
uh, art in Chinese and it's either Chinese or Spanish. And I was teaching uh, Tom Cruise's daughter, Suri Cruise. <laughs> and so that's one thing that I brag about, but that's, uh, that's like really short because I, I don't think I really enjoyed that. So I just did it for one semester. Um, and then I'm working for HBO now uh, translating basically. I got to jump in here because that's a year, not eerily similar, but a bit similar to what I was doing in Shanghai. I was at uh, Shanghai High School International Division, Shanghai Zhongshui Guajibu. Oh, so, I mean, it's in the in- international schools kind of league in Shanghai. It's not, it's a cheaper one, but it's, yeah, it's a prestigious, uh, the Shanghai High School is a prestigious one. So we had a lot of rich kids, uh, some smarter than others, um, but we didn't really have anyone really um, high up because it's not such a fancy international school. But we did have Yao Ming's kid, the basketball player. I didn't teach. I don't think I ever taught that kid. I might have met. I don't know if it was a boy or a girl. You probably saw but him one he was time like a I foot was taller than everybody else, I bet. Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, this is it was perfect. I was sitting in the in a primary school classroom because I was a substitute. So I did all ages. But I was doing a primary school appearance evening and I was facing the corridor. The classrooms were aligned along a corridor and that wall was like door was here, no windows at door level. But above the door, there was like these thin strip windows. And I looked down, I looked up and there was like a head, like a Pusong Ling story, like a head floating about nine feet in the air. And I was like, oh, oh, shit, that's Yao Ming. And <laughs> yeah. That was the one time I saw him. It's, it's funny you bring that up. I mean, I read an article last night about how like the first thing he had to learn was how to talk trash when he started playing in the NBA. And so now he like goes back and plays with his buddies in China and he like talks trash in English to them and they have no idea what he's saying. And I always thought that was really funny. Maybe they'll learn a few things. Yeah. During the parents meeting, uh, I was hoping that I would see Katie Holmes, which is Syracuse mom. Cause I, I used to watch her TV shows, which is like in the 80s, like Dawson's Creek or something. I don't know. That's the 90s. <laughs> don't make me feel old now. <laughs> <Any> older. <laughs> yeah. And I heard she only went once. Um, I never saw her. She only went once. And every parent were like starstruck. So mm. looking at her like, you know. Yeah. Suri Steve is very, very good. Yeah. Very sweet girl. That's good. <laughs> Mason. Yeah, so uh, my name is Mason. I like long walks on the beach. No, <laughs> respect, no. Um, so I'm, uh, I'm from Oregon. I was born and raised here. In high school, I studied abroad in Taiwan through Rotary for a year. And then I lived there for an entire year. Turned to U of, I returned to Oregon and I got my bachelor's, my undergraduate in Chinese language with a focus on uh, literature. It was mainly Qing dynasty literature, but they just said literature. Um, and then I lived in Taiwan for about mm. five years after that. So I decided to go to Germany. And in Germany, I studied at the University of Würzburg, where I studied Chinese studies with a focus on late, late Ming literature. And then there, that's when I kind of got my passion, where I wrote my master's thesis on the Encyclopedia for Gentry and Merchants as a depiction of mercantile literature in the late imperial China. Uh, route books. It was about mer- mer- merchant route books. And um, that wasn't what I wanted to do, but my professor needed it for his studies. So we kind of scratched each other's back. And then he 
introduced me to um, a whole bunch of short story, short stories like Xiao Suo and that kind of stuff. And then I, so I started translating these stories into English because the English translations were garbage. And my German friends were like, or not garbage, but they just use words that nobody uses in the last century. So we, I started translating these and telling these stories in modernized versions. And then I got the idea for my podcast last year during quarantine, um, which is where I take traditional Chinese fables and short stories and I translate them into an English English version. I will be honest, I do have to, unfortunately, I have to go in a little bit. So I'm sorry I have to leave early, but I wish I could stay here for longer and chit chat with you guys. Is it ha- half an hour? You uh, about 20 minutes because I do got to put on like shoes and pants and st- uh, real pants. Like Okay. Um, in that case, maybe we can skip the intros when we're doing the interview and I'll just use these and maybe edit them down. And then that will save you some time. I like, again, I'm sorry for this whole thing. I just got kind of some big news that I kind of needed to do. No worries. No worries. So Yang, tell us about yourself. Hi. Hi everyone. Yeah. My Chinese name is Li Yang and I came to, um, us in 2012 for grad school. Um, so now I live in Madison, Wisconsin. Um, actually maybe I'm the, maybe the least academic person here because my major is actually geology and engineering. I'm really doing the podcast just for fun. And (laughs) so I'm not like an Eastern studies major or anything. So maybe you guys know more than me. I did the podcast just out of like fun because I like to read a lot of stories when I was a kid and like to share with people. And like when I look it up on the internet, it's kind of hard to find the English translations, like what Mason just said, like, um, maybe just the classics, like, but not the little stories or the little myths and legend stories. So that's why I started the podcast and I did for a year and a half, but I stopped a little bit this year because um, I was a little bit busy, but I will start, I mean, last year, 2020, but I will start sometime this year again. Cool. Um, I guess just so that we get a uh, full use of Mason here, we can get the ball rolling. Um, so I think, I guess what we can do is we'll go person by person. They can introduce their podcast because we've already done like introducing ourselves uh, then you can intro- introduce, maybe quickly summarize the story you've picked. And then I'm going to ruthlessly set a 10 minute timer. And then we'll have 10 minutes discussion uh, for each story. And then once we've done all the stories, if you guys can stick around longer and there's any burning questions you didn't ask, we can do that in the leftover time, if that sounds okay. So yeah. Yeah, Mason, okay. Uh, you've told us a little bit about yourself and your podcast. Is there anything else you want to uh, introduce or just go straight to the story you've chosen um in all honesty i kind of told it pretty well in that introduction so i think mm. um check it out it's called the plum forest podcast and it's wild and crazy stories um that you never know what's going to happen because a lot of these stories don't have any real plot structure um kind of but yeah and it's a it's a fun podcast and it's good for a nice little drive to your commute to work or whatnot all right okay so Tell us about your story that you've picked. So um, I picked the Thunder God. Um, it is one of Pu Songling's stories in Liao Zai Zhi, or stories from a Chinese studio. Uh, strange stories, however you'd like to translate that. Um, but I picked this one because I thought it was, I've always been boggled by this story. Um, I've always wondered, like the whole thing with the, so it's, it's two, uh, two young boys, they're good friends, then one of them dies, and one of them becomes a, a magistrate or a, an, what is the, 
becomes a higher up person in the village. And he, when he's, he realizes he doesn't make money from it. And so he becomes a merchant. And so then as he's a merchant, he treats this like humongous dude and uh, to a whole bunch of food. And then this guy introduces or kind of gets to know him a little bit better. And after one thing leading to another, he turns out that he is the thunder God and he was sent to earth for doing some, some wrongdoings. And it, yeah. And then after this, he, this is when it, it's always gotten, this has been the mind boggling part to me when um, he kind of, he gets to know, he meets, he has like a son and he names the son star. And then he's looking at stars. And then um, his, his buddy that died when he was younger, that kind of helped him push with each other through the studying. He uh, becomes, a, is now like reincarnated through this child. Um, and it's the star. And I always thought that like, it's a really good story until like the last like paragraph last, like maybe 10, 15 sentences. And it then just becomes a huge jumble. And so I've always thought this is really interesting. And I wanted to get your guys' opinion on this too, because I've talked to a lot of professors and a lot of people about this story. And it's always interesting that how people partake that end of the story. I kind of liked the story. Most of the end, I, I felt, I felt like it was a twist ending and I, I don't know if a lot of the Pusongling stories end on a twist like that or if they get weird or very if they get very weird earlier on I'm really not an expert so it does it make sense to think of it as a twist ending I, I personally wouldn't say I'd say it's a twist ending but not the stereotypical twist ending where it's not so much like someone dies or someone or someone does kind of die but it um it's kind of a good, a happy ending to this one almost, which a lot of Pusongin stories do not have. They're not all fairy tales and beautiful endings and stuff. And this was kind of interesting to kind of, this was one of the few that did, that had a positive ending at the end. And that's why I've always, I've always asked people about their opinions on the ending of this, because it's not very stereotypical for Pusongin to have a positive ending or something along those lines. Right. And have you, you other podcasters, have you guys read much Pu Songling? Well, definitely Pu Songling is one of my favorite authors when I was a kid, especially. Yeah, because I like the romantic part of his stories. Like this story, you know, like today I'm going to talk about some story kind of similar like this story was about like karma and stuff. But uh, for Pu Songling, she, he always used like the romantic feel. Like I really like this part of the story. Like he... Um, like the person used the moon as like a light source, uh, used the stars as, as the light source. And it kind of reminded me a lot of another story of Bu Songling's, the, um, Lao Shan Dao Shi, like the pe- person cut a paper moon and become a real moon in the room and you can use it as a light of source. I really like Bu Songling too. Uh, I actually did my first episode of the whole podcast on Bu Songling. Just, uh, which story did I do? I, I did a few stories and I was talking about how um, every story that Pusongling writes, it's really a expression, a self-expression because he's this kind of lost and uh, nobody um, kind of scholar and we try to be someone, but eventually is still just uh, a writer that's struggling. But, but he sees like other people um, in, in such a way that it's sad at first, but then w- once you delve into the story, you see the human side of all these like ghosts and werebees and all that. So um, I thought, yeah, I really like Pusongling too. Um, the, the story is 
I thought is really interesting. I have a random question. Sorry. So, so we are we are the second group, right? So it's just us, and the f- people who are in the first group, like where are they? Uh, they're. I'm gonna do a different Zoom meeting with them. Oh, I. See. We're 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 Team Classic Lit. They're Team Modern Lit. Oh, cool. So from your guys' perspective, they suck. <laughs> cool. Thank um, you. Yeah, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I was like, hmm. Hmm. <laughs> yeah yeah it was just to avoid total chaos and also if there's nine of us 10 minutes per story that's long yeah. uh, maybe long enough for some of us but i didn't want people to be you know too pushed for time anyway um here's a question for you mason yeah oh, oh do, 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 yeah. do you mind if i ask tian chi a quick question or say something about what she just said i thought i loved how she said Pusongling gives the humanization of people through ghosts. And, and that's something that I found in a lot of his stories is he makes you feel for people and how Pusongling is, if we think about this, writing was common, but it's not as common as it was as it is now. And so it's able to see that he would vocalize and tell these stories to people at inns and stuff where he would tell these and or people would tell these and you're able to feel for the people, which that's a really hard thing to do in, in audio talking. And I thought it was, it's amazing how Pusong Ling is able to give the human nature and make these people real and not just like, like even the thunder God, like when they were talking about how he was so big, like I could feel like this guy, he's slurping down bowls of food. He orders a pig shoulder. Like I like, yeah. And I just thought of the mountain from game of Thrones, but it was interesting that he was able to kind of give you that the personification of these people and how he's able to portray that really well. And that was a really interesting point. I I think that it's really cool that he, he has this um, persona or, he the stories that he writes offers like this opportunity that he expresses and represents what he feels what it means to be human so, sort of like the, the to be or not to be question like whether it's a fox fairy or whether it's a, a ghost or whether it's like a thunder god or um it's never really you don't feel like they're they're like the god figures in in the uh, western mythologies um but more like a um a figure that you you sort of relate to but sort of not so it's like kind of in between like the self and the other so i thought that's really cool yeah one thing um that struck me too was um, you know reading the english translation of the story and then reading the original chinese version of it is how much more characterization i feel like it's actually exists in the English version than the original Chinese, which is because the original Chinese, I think it's um, written in a style that's very economical, right? I was so, disturbed by how short it was. I was like, have I got the mm-hmm. wrong story here? But because the English yeah. was looked like a short story, right. Chinese looked like, I don't know, it might have been a flash fiction or something. <laughs> it's like three paragraphs. Yeah. Yeah, Fewer yeah. sentences sometimes. But again, at the same time, though, it's interesting how they translated that and how like because I I noticed that, too. But like, how did they add those things? Was that the author's point when they were translating it was trying to make give you more humanization or personification of it? Or were they trying to turn two sentences into three paragraphs or were they just trying to fill space? And I don't know. I think that's really interesting that you brought that up too, John. There are you know, I mean, there are, you know, Chinese versions of this where they translate the original into more contemporary vernacular Chinese um, that is longer and um, give a fuller, you know, 
description of the, you know, the character and things like that. So uh, you know, one thing I'm curious is, you know, if the English translators were work, you know, if they were working mm. off of the original or if they were working at least with like, you know, one of those other the vernacular Chinese um, translations as a reference. I, was it? A, I'm just I, I had to restart my computer. So I lost the um, the tabs that had all the stories open. I think we're, the, the one we had listed, was it a Herbert Giles translation? I'm just bringing it up now. Right. Uh, yes. I don't yeah. know if he has a particular style as a translator to do stuff like this to kind of insert his own creative <laughs> writing. I don't know if you any of you guys know much about that, but I do know that translators working back then, I guess they weren't really at risk of being accused of being, I don't know, problematic or orientalist, which probably gave them, for better or for worse, a bit more of a free hand to mess about with the Chinese texts. But this is all just speculation. I'm far from an expert. And it, it's kind of interesting you also bring that up because my old professor, we had a talk about how did did someone tell this story to Giles verbally and then he right. wrote it down or so he would hear the Chinese of the person telling it to him and then he would write down what he would think it was in English and then they compare. I, my, my professor always had that idea in his mind that because that's a lot of Giles's works is like that. That's really interesting. Um, we're in, we're down to our last three minutes. Um, I have a backup question, but does anyone does anyone really want to say something? I was gonna say a little about the, the translation because it's always like the original classical Chinese, and then I I like as Chinese, you know, growing up, you we we learn like classical Chinese in our school as mandatory. Um, so so I read like that, and then and then I always like cheat and read the the modernized the translation first. And then like later on when I come to US, then the last thing I would read is the English translation. So for, for us, like Chinese, growing up speaking Chinese, learning classical Chinese is, I guess it's always the different bit, like take on, on, the, on the text. It doesn't sound a million miles different from in school. Just by coincidence, every single year of high school I was in, we had to do a Shakespeare play, but we're using the school versions, which have expl explainers down the um, the spine, which tell you all the different allusions to Greek, Roman, or current, you know, current affairs of Shakespeare's time. And yeah, without those, without some kind of a spark notes or a secondary text, as a teenager, I would have been like, I hate this. I, I can't get anything from it. So although I'm, I'm not, not Chinese, haven't gone through the education, system that you did i can relate yeah i i i remember reading my first commentary on like one of those and just like it's the same thing where it's got the 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 it's the text and then little notes and i always thought that was really interesting to see like what they were what they chose mm -hmm. to talk about and what they chose to explain and why and yeah, yeah. yeah. okay last minute anyone really burning to say something Okay, here's a question for you then, Mason. Do you think it's a funny story? Okay, this is that weird, wild, wild roller coaster we're about to go on. <laughs> go where 40 seconds. I'm going to go, yeah, I'm, I'm going to be this quick with this. No, I don't think it's a funny story. I think it's a, a heartfelt story where it starts sad, kind of goes down, goes up and then down, and then it kind of adds on a positive note where with the star and he's having a son, which it's following a lot of the traditional values of, traditional Chinese culture where he has a son finally like, <laughs> oh, yay. And so it's, it was, I felt this was like a heartwarming story and not so much a scary or, or frightening or kind of intense story as compared to some of the other stories. And there goes my alarm. 
All right, Mason, do you want to stick around for another 15 minutes or do you, do you have you got to get going? Um, if I can get going, that would be ideal. But if you need no, me to stay around no, for a little bit more, um, how, okay. Okay. Uh, how long do you think you'll be going to? Um, well, what another 10 minutes for these guys each plus intro time. So call that 15, 45 plus any time, maybe another hour thereabouts. Okay. More. So yeah, if, if, if I return, cause it shouldn't take too long. If I return, I'll check in and uh -huh. see if you guys are still yeah, going. Cool. All right. Well, thank you. Very it was nice to meet you all. Yeah. And hopefully I'll see you guys in a little bit. Cool. Yeah, Jen, bye bye. Bye. Okay. Um, next up is Yang, I guess. You want to introduce your podcast first, then your story, uh, and then we yeah, can ask sure. the questions. Okay. Um, so, hi, everyone. Um, I'm Yang, the host of um, Chinese Mythology Podcast. So, in the podcast, I talk about Chinese myths and legends that um, you can seldom find in English translations um, online or in books. Um, so, today... Uh, my story today is called Weaver Shi Meets a Friend at the Strand. Uh, the Chinese is Shi Ren Zhe Tan Chie Yu You. It is from the book Jing Shi Hong Yan, um, Stories to Awaken the World, published in 1627 by the author Feng Menglong in the Ming Dynasty. And uh, the translation is by Tad Wang and Chen Chen. I'm going to talk about part of the story, the first half of the story, because it's a little bit long. Um, so it's about this guy named Sheng, uh, Shifu. He's from the place called Shengzhe, and he is a weaver guy, which is like, um, he does, um, the weaving, um, um, he's a weaver in the silkworm industry. And the story is about one day he found a pouch with a lot of silver in it and he returned to the person who lost the pouch and um, they lost contact for years until one year he went to this place um, another township to get some mulberry leaves for her, for his silkworms and he accidentally met the guy who lost the money again and the guy who lost money is called Zhu En so Zhu En was really glad that after so many years, he found this person, he met this person again. So he let him stay at home and try to make a feast for him. Um, he Zhuen asked his wife to cook some rice with chicken for Sheng, uh, for, Shi, for, for Shifu. However, Shifu said, um, I don't need the chicken. We just have fun and eat something else. After dinner, um, Shifu stayed at Zhuen's house. During the night, Shifu heard some sounds of chicken and he ran out to see what's going on because he saw the chicken was chasing after by a whistle or something. And as soon as he ran out of the house, he heard the crash. And when he looked back, he saw actually his bed was crashed by some axle falling down from the roof. It's a really long story. And Zhuen came to see him and say, oh, I thought you were... I, um, Zhuen, Zhuen actually saw the the sound of the chicken and he thought it was a whistle chasing after the chicken as well. So um, he was he was outside checking when he heard, also heard the big crash. Uh, so it turned out um, Shifu was saved by those chicken because um, if he, because um, if he didn't came out if he didn't come out of the house he will be crashed he will be died um, and Zhu said oh because you're safe uh, the reason you are safe because 
You didn't eat this chicken last night, so you're safe by this chicken. Yeah. So it started to rain the next morning.、Um, after breakfast, Shifu prepared to leave. Well, Zhuwen said, "What about stay another night if, for another day? Because、um, we haven't seen each other for all these years."、Um, Shifu just say, "Okay,、uh, we can leave together tomorrow. I can leave leave tomorrow."、Um, so around the around,、uh, so the next morning, a powerful windstorm actually blew up, and. Zhuwen exam says it's heaven's will that you should stay with me instead of going further on your trip, because everyone who across the lake must be in peril. And Shifu agreed that the rain, the windstorm is truly unexpected and fearsome. So after the rain stopped, Shifu and Zhuwen、um, start their、um, trip back home.、Um, when they arrive, the When they arrived their township, the neighborhood all came out and asked, "So, did you get the mulberry leaves?" And Shifu said, "Oh, actually, I got those mulberry leaves from a friend I know from years ago. I didn't actually go across the lake."、Um, the neighborhood was um, um, the na- the neighbor was like, "Oh, you're so fortunate because、uh, we we're wondering if the people who cross the lake actually."、Um, Like we're wondering if the people who cross the lake are still safe. And、um, when Zhuwen and Shifu finally back home,、um, right. they they、uh, they heard some sound of whipping suddenly arose in in some neighborhood、uh, houses because apparently the 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 boat Shifu took、um, with the other companions. Um, actually capsized, and all the passengers on the boat died and drowned, except one person who returned and brought back the sad news.、Um, and Shifu was appalled, and he came to Zhuwen and said, "Oh, my big brother, if you not, if you hadn't persuaded me to stay for one, one, <laughs> for another night, I probably will suffer the same."、Um, so that's pretty much the first half of the story. Like um, Shifu, um, it's basically like this person Shifu picked up some money somebody else lost, and he got good fortune after returning back those money to the person who lost the money. Okay,、um, something I was really wanting to say at some point in the episode was so I've listened to all of your guys' podcasts a little bit, but maybe the one that I've got strongest memories of, Yang, it's your podcast because I would listen to it a lot. When I was doing my masters in Edinburgh, and I would be walking, usually walking to work, it was my only exercise in the week. So I took a long walk, and I remember listening to your podcast with your husband. He's the co-host, so you're telling him these often yeah, quite yeah. strange and obscure stories. And my favorite part of every episode was just listening to him, kind of, I don't know,、um, being completely weirded out or going like, "What?" <laughs> Yeah, I think that's part of the podcast. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I just felt anyone listening who was, I thought they had to know that about your podcast because it makes it <laughs> makes it stand out in my memory. Because he doesn't know anything about like Chinese stories or especially Asian ones, so so he probably asked some questions that everybody else, like a lot of people, ask. 
do you think he's learned a lot over time? Because honestly, before I started my podcast, I only knew a little bit, but just reading the things, half the time I'm only reading the thing so I can talk about it online, but cumulatively it's added up to, you know, not anything as not being as knowledgeable as you guys or, or Mason, but just over time, I feel like I've picked up a lot. Do you think he's learning? Do you think he's got a good foundation in old strange Chinese stories now? Or do you think he's still lost? Well, I think definitely not, maybe not the story itself. Probably don't remember exactly what happened in the stories, but you definitely get the idea or you kind of start getting to know the Chinese culture and the like values. Right. Okay, yeah. I'm going to use that as a starting question for our discussion. I've just started the clock. Do you think there's a lot of um, traditional Chinese values in the Weaver Shu story? Yeah, for sure. Actually, I really like the stories in like the the series by Feng Menglong, San Yang Pai. But I don't like I don't actually like his way of writing because he's really like tell he like actually I skipped the part because he really likes to tell people oh this is spelled tomorrow blah 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 this is the value blah 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 it's really annoying I like because when I read story maybe it's my pre- personal preference I don't like to talk about the morals because like in my podcast it's the same I don't like to tell people okay maybe author want to say that uh, the moral of the story is blah 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 I just want to tell people this story and then people can get what they want from the stories yeah, and Fonlo definitely like to talk about values a lot in his stories. Right. I guess maybe that's common for a lot of um, ancient literature or or even old literature from a lot of the world. We don't. There wasn't the same sort of fiction industry that we have now with novels and stuff and ideas about how you tell a story in first or third person, blah blah blah. But then again, I guess there's we've already done one Pu Songling story where. As far as I'm aware, Pu Songling never tells you, here's a good person, here's a bad person, here's what to think. So do any of you guys have a question on the tip of your tongue? Not a question, but um, just, um, you know, going along with the idea of, you know, how moralizing the story is, I also, that also kind of stuck out to me as well. Um, it, in many ways, it kind of reminds me of, um, so, you know, when I was growing up, growing up in China and like, you know, like they would try to teach you like, proper behavior in schools and like it reminds me of like little stories that they would tell you like that you know right? um the other thing i think about too is that you know i feel like the way these stories are written like i think part of the aim is that they were written in part to be you know to be told orally so i'm imagining like a storyteller you know like i don't know in a tea house or something and telling these stories and i guess that's in that way i could see where like at the end you know like the storyteller may just you know, bring use like that the moralizing lesson. You know, the le- and, the, and today's lesson is that you know, blah, blah, blah. so um, I can see in that. Um, yeah, but then the uh, I guess the other thing I that I kind of um, noticed about uh, Feng Menglong's uh, stories is that the way he structures them, he always opens with these one or two little uh, smaller anecdotes that are related to the larger anecdote. And uh, since we're talking about this on a podcast, it's kind of funny because it struck me that it's almost like he needed like a low extra filler to make to make like a certain time for something, right? He kind of <laughs> yeah, so like, okay, let me let me let me group like two two or three stories together. Yeah, I currently do a freelance job writing children's stories for an education company, and they pay me seven cents from a U.S. dollar per word. So there is like it's good pay, is and there's strong incentive to just 
Um, or adjectives, some description. <laughs> Kenji, is, are you going to... Do you mix your... Um, sorry, this is off topic, but I just couldn't help. Do you mix your like Chinese stories with the writings that you do? Kind of giving them some moral tales oh. that are... In- by you know you reading knowing all these well, stories from China. I think something I had to remind my Chinese friends they would say like oh in our culture there's lots of emphasis on family on morality and I was like well I went to church the first five, 12 years of my life um, there was a lot of and my primary school that I went to uh, was uh, they were very fixated on God and Jesus and maybe one strength of Christianity, at least the New Testament, is there are some quite good short fables, but they're often, you know, the teacher or your, I went to Sunday school as well. And every story ends on, here are the morals. You should learn the morals. They don't really end on a discussion about, well, they could end on a discussion, but you couldn't deviate from the meaning you were supposed to get from it. So again, although I'm not Chinese, I wasn't brought up with these stories, what you guys are saying about being fed the story with the meaning and the moral, I can relate. That describes a lot of my childhood. Mm. Not so much my high school, cool. but it stopped in high school. I went to a much more secular school, but yeah. Well, that's the one reason I like the um, Brother Grimm story because they're so dark <laughs> and you don't really know what's the moral of the story. Yeah, I grew up reading Brother uh, Grimm's story. And I, I took German in college when I came to US. My German professor was like, why do you take German? And I said, it's, it's because I like the dark. <laughs> the dark. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I, I like, I really like Bumolong's stories. I, I think it's actually a, in, I don't know, I'm generalizing, but in academia, I think it's a big trend to, to uh, interpret like from Wolong's, like all these Huaben, like Xiaoshuo stories in, in a new light, kind of. And, and also to dig them up because from Wolong wrote so many, so many stories and not all of them are translated. And, well, I, I, guess, I guess a lot of them are translated now, but not all of them were analyzed and all that. So, so the PhD students just, really need to, to to grab on something and then a lot of them grab on homolong because it's it's fairly easy you don't you don't have that obscure words and stuff so like at least at columbia um, my advisor um, actually studied homolong stories um, and um, some phd students i know also um, do these um, they write about really funny things <laughs> i think the phd students like some of them write about like Tushen, like the the god of the toilet and things mm-hmm. like that. Um, yeah. And the, the, the Minjian, the deities, like, uh, local deities, and all that. So I thought it's very cool. Hmm. I hadn't heard of uh, Feng Menglong before organizing this big crossover podcast. So I don't know anything about the man and his life. Uh, Yang or any of you guys who might know, do we is much known about the guy? beyond his stories yeah he's uh, i mean he's i think he's a well-known um, historian right. and, uh, he was a court official too right i think um and i believe he and um his brothers like he has two brothers and i think they were all well-known uh, as scholars so and he wrote a um he wrote a really long 
novel, uh, like the Dong Zhou Lie Guo Lie Guo Zhi, um, you know, about the Eastern Zhou Dynasty, which is you know the Spring and Autumn right. and Warring States period. Uh, that's where I mean, that's where I actually first kind of encountered him, um, and then went I found his other short stories. Cool. Yeah, I know that uh, Chairman Mao's favorite. Like uh, this is like rumor has it that uh, favorite is like San Yan, so which, which is uh, Jing Shi Tong Yan, Xin Shi Hong Yan, and uh, uh, Yu Shi Ming Yan. So um, these three uh, short story collections are like quintessential like Chinese Bai Hua Xiaoshuo. I think Lu Xun writes about you know Bai Hua, Bai Hua Wen, Bai Hua Xiaoshuo, and all these. Um, and he, he like Feng Meng himself is very well educated. Come from a really good family. He's, I think, his father is is a official or something like that. Yeah. So. Yeah, and I also think those stories are really well known, or people like to read it because they usually use the stories as the scripts for operas mm. or like you know, like Jingju or Xiju. So people, like normal people, just can watch it and it's really easy to understand it doesn't have like big words or and bringing the conversation full circle i guess that's a bit like the brothers Grimm stories where people probably come into contact with them more in their secondary forms so you you guys were saying you really like brothers Grimm because of how dark those stories are but my contact with those stories was like this slightly cleaned up children's versions although I mean, they still involve murder and stuff, <laughs> um, but also a cleaned up children's version might have some kind of a moral stuck on the end, even if the moral is like, don't try and eat grandmothers or something. Uh, we're <laughs> on to our last 40 seconds. Does anyone want to make a last closing remark? Well, I guess just like, if you, like me, who don't like morals, <laughs> <laughs> just like stories, just read those stories as, Maybe not karma, but maybe just like butterfly effect, like just a chain of like conse- like mm. consequences. Things just don't happen to sit happen. Maybe there's a reason it happened. Oh, the yeah. alarm's about to go. Oh. There it goes. My favorite, my favorite story is Du Shenyang. So I guess I can send mm. it. Yeah. <laughs> One thing I want to talk about more on my own podcast is yeah. fate um, in general and how it pops up in Chinese lit. But maybe we can talk about that more at the end. Um, next story we're going to do is, I think it's our John story from Shui Hu. Um, John, do you want to introduce your podcasts? Or Yeah, sh- yeah. yeah sure. Uh, so uh, I've done two podcasts. Uh, the first one is on the romance of the three kingdoms. And the other, uh, the one I'm currently working on is the water margin podcast. Um, and so they're both about, you know, translating, uh, you know, these, you know, classic Chinese novels into um, English and making them um, a little more approachable, uh, a little easier to comprehend. Uh, more so for the Three Kingdoms, um, the water margin, I think, is actually very, uh, very approachable, very, you know, relatively easy read. Um, so uh, for our podcast today, I chose uh, chapter two of uh, the water margin. So the water margin was written in the 14th century, and it's set in the, I think, 12th century. 
in the Song Dynasty. And it's about a bunch of outlaws uh, who are wreaking havoc for the uh, authorities. And one of the reasons I really like this novel is that it paints this really rich depiction of all levels of society, um, all the way from like, emperors to lowly layabouts and all the levels in between, like, like paupers, peasants, princes, and kings. <laughs> uh, yeah, and uh, so, you know, and, the, and that's also why I picked this chapter, uh, because I think in this one chapter, you know, we get all those, we kind of get a glimpse of all those different levels, right? We follow Gao Qiu, who starts as a riffraff, basically, and he, you know, gets exiled and he's, you know, scrounging by in a gambling den. And then before long, you know, he somehow, you know, becomes a member of a prince's entourage and then rises to become a high official and that prince becomes the emperor. But then from there, we follow a, uh, a kind of like a rank and file drill instructor in the army who then, you know, takes us like out of the capital, goes into the countryside, and then we meet some farmers, we meet landlords, we meet their servants, and then we eventually we run into some bandits. Uh, so, you know, just in this one chapter, we get this nice cross-section of all these different levels of society. And, you know, the thing I like about this novel is that, you know, a lot of times the most interesting parts are the little interactions that happen in like the middle and lower rungs of the society rather than anything that's like happening in the palace or at court. Uh, and this chapter is kind of nice illustration of that. You've sunk my first question, which was going to be why this chapter, but that's good. Yeah. Well, there you go. <laughs> <laughs> uh, right. I'm going to start the timer. Oh, actually, before I do. Um, so a thing I really like about John's podcast, this is a cheat. This is a cheat um, anecdote because I figured, John, if I'm going to really listen to your podcast, I should do it as a big binge. So I actually only have ever listened to one or two episodes, but I'm planning when the opportunity presents itself to power through one of them. Uh, but what I want to say is you should follow John's social media for the podcast because mm -hmm. it's the best use of Lego I've ever seen. It's so cool. It's like chapter by chapter <laughs> with perfect. I, I don't know how... I didn't realize you could make your Lego man look so much like, you know, you could create such a good dynastic Chinese scene from him. It's amazing. Yeah. Well, uh, you should thank my wife for that because, uh, <laughs> so I started doing that with like, um, you know, a little bit on when I was doing the three kingdoms podcast. And then when I got the water margin, I was like, Oh, you know, cause for three kingdoms, there were like, I could just go online and actually found three kingdoms, Lego sets. Amazing. But then when I got the water margin, I was like, Oh, well, there isn't any like water margin stuff out there. My wife heard that. And then uh, for Christmas one year, I think she gave me, she, she went and actually like got different Lego sets and built a bunch of uh, water margin characters. And this is from somebody who, you know, is not all that familiar with the water <laughs> margin. So she did a ton of research into, you know, she went and found, went online, found pictures from TV shows and, you know, comic books and whatever, and built Lego characters that, you know, if you looked at, if you knew the characters and you looked at these Legos, you immediately knew, oh, that's so-and-so. So, -and -so. so uh, yeah, so she is the enabler in all this. That's, that's amazing. I wasn't expecting that. <laughs> okay, I'm going to start the timer. Um, and I'm going to, I'm going to be the token Westerner again. Because um, this is two, two of our, at least two of our stories uh, involve like feasting and eating together. And I remember I'd never thought about the significance in that in of, of feasting or eating in literature until I read it was a chapter in a 
book called, what was it, Breakfast with Socrates that breaks down a day and analyzes each part of the day using philosophy. I think it was all Western philosophy. And when it got to like mealtime, the writer talked all about Beowulf and how it's basically a book about eating. Everyone feasts together, the monster eats people. And I know in this chapter, everyone kind of bonds over a meal. Is that a big thing in all of Water Margin? Like dining together? Is there much we can say? Well, I mean, I think every other page, there's like some kind of feast. Um, right. It, once you get going in the story. Uh, so I mean, I think, yeah, you're right. I mean, feasting is definitely a significant part of the, the um, social interactions, right? Um, and, you know, one actually one thing I really like about the water margin, uh, one of my favorite parts is when uh, one, when the main character, Song Jiang, goes to a, uh, he, gets, he, gets, he gets into trouble, he gets exiled to, but, you know, he, his dad bribes the, bribes the uh, court to exile him to a nice vacation spot. And, uh, you know, like there's like a whole chapter where he's basically going around with a couple of his friends and dining at these <laughs> famous, you know, restaurants and things like that. And that's kind of one of my favorite parts. Uh, so, yeah, uh, food and feasting definitely play key parts in these social you know, interactions. And since this novel is so much about these kind of social interactions, you know, so we see that a lot. Mm. Um, so it's like literary food porn almost. Kind of, yes. That's um, that's reminding me of when I read um, Song of Ice and Fire. There's some insane descriptions of food in those books. And it's like, ah, that's why George R. R. Martin is perhaps such a large guy. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And you know, like, with, wall, with the wall margin, you know, one of the interesting things is that it's not just like a feast, like the author gets into very specific, you know, talking about like specific vintages from, you know, of wine when they're in a certain area. So, yeah they just it gets you're right it is kind of like food porn and booze porn drinking yeah yes. i've read a few chinese stories where it's like um there's an author was he murong shui sun who likes writing about kind of corrupt guys in business and politics and there's like long sections where it's like just how what they ate how drunk they got and it's like yeah this is cool. I'm enjoying reading everything. That's, even if it's not really a plot. Anyway, I'm going to stop talking. Um, Tianqi and Yang, is there anything you want to say? Oh, I was going to go on the food point because uh, <laughs> I, I uh, took one class with the Buddhist uh, professor on Buddhism at Columbia, and he would make the dessert that's from the book. I and then he would give it to us in class. So that was really cool. He's a really, really delicate cook. So, um, but a lot of them are like very simple because um, it's like from, uh, from some like novels on like Buddhism or something. So it's very like su. So it's all vegetarian or vegan actually. I, I have a question on just in general, like on how you would, recommend of uh, your readers to to approach such a violent novel mm -hmm. like all the violence inside and then yeah. the killing yeah and all. it is very violent right yeah. um you know i think about it in context of you know if you read the um like some of the ancient western you know epics like the iliad or the odyssey right there's there's a those are also kind of equally or you know very much uh, filled with violence as well. Um, so, I mean, I would, 
I would read it from that perspective that, you know, it's, it's the, maybe perhaps the ethical or, you know, the, that part of, of, the, of the times, right? It kind of reflective of the times, um, you know, and I feel like, and also, you know, kind of having grown up in China but also spent significant time in the U.S., um, I think in Chinese culture in general, just there, there's like a greater tolerance for it, at least like language or depiction of violence versus in the West, where I think mm. they kind of freak out, like that's a little more sensitive, but then, you know, there are also, then there are things that are more taboo in Chinese culture that the West would just kind of, you know, shirk off and like, eh, whatever, you know? So, uh, yeah, that's kind of how I view it. Um, yeah. Mm. That's, that makes me wonder if there's a difference in Western and Chinese stuff, not in how much does violence appear in literature, but does violence being in the story affect whether people think it's high literature or low literature. Um, like I'm trying to like, I don't know the idea of a Kung Fu story being high literature in a Western context, it sounds almost uh, impossible. I guess there are like, like the Greek Iliad and Lord of the Rings. I suppose those are like stories with fighting and battles, but like even Lord of the Rings, I think it's maybe only in recent decades when that's been considered high literature and not sort of silly fantasy. I don't know if it's different in the Chinese context where violence affects how much prestige high or low a story gets. I feel like when we were growing up, uh, we are taught that the novels are great because of their sensuality. So the, the meaning that uh, they they reflect the society at the time, and um, um, they reflect like how, say, corrupt the government was, or how people were living uh, bad, uh, and then like there were you know hunger and poverty and all that kind of thing. And um, and I feel like in, in Chinese novels, you either have like all just human cast, <laughs> or you have like all kind of animals and like gods and stuff you you very kind of rarely have i uh, i don't know how to put it i get i guess in like a epic story like shui hu it's, it's all human right and it's mostly men 99 percent men yeah, uh, yeah and, they, <laughs> and and you just don't get kind of a like a god descends and then try to save everybody's scene um chaos and people eating right so you have very high fantasy or very low fantasy nothing in the middle yeah i guess it's also the the just the volume the the of the the work it's so um it it's so long and it's so vivid with so many characters um that really constituted like great um work in the classical literature sense yeah right so bigger is better i i feel if i were to explain to someone who doesn't know anything about chinese literature i, I would say yeah the four like major works or the six major works were all like significantly large kind of book with like more than uh, 80 chapters or more than 60 chapters. Mm. I have a bit of a, a disclaimer here. So one some of the publishing work I do is bringing, it's working for a publisher that does Chinese literature and English translation. And I guess they're trying to do a lot of great literature or there's also some adaptations of TV shows. 
And these are big, big, big books in the original Chinese. And then when we translate them into English, it's just like translating English into German. They expand. And then that becomes a problem because it can't be contained on one book's spine. So it's like, oh, are we now we need to do a multi-volume work. And I guess we were talking earlier about early translations of these classics. And as far as I'm aware, a lot of them would just chop out chapters. Either not even just to make it more readable, just to fit it on one book. How do you decide which chapters to chop off? <laughs> yeah, well, I guess you have to read it all first to know which ones are central to the plot and which aren't. But we got a minute left for this one. Young, uh, you've not said anything yet, I think. Yeah, no. Well, I mean, like um, for the the four greatest Chinese classics, oh, Xue Hu Zhuan is not one of my favorites. I guess, like maybe I'm the stereotype one because I like Hulomong the most. Like people always say the guys like the Xue Hu Zhuan and the girls like the Hulomong. But anyway, but uh, I mean, like Xue Hu Zhuan definitely for me is like the wild one. Like as a person, not like COD, like Journey to the West, but it's like as a person. You have the free spirit, sort of free spirit, and you're just kind of like, okay, I'm done with my life. Like I don't, I I can't tolerate it anymore. I just need to do something. I need to change something. And yeah, for the foot the foot porn part, when I was a kid, I I actually never read the whole book of Shui Hu Zhuan. I watched some of the TV shows. Um, yeah, because it was like, uh, it just came out or like just released when I was a kid, and. I always like dream like one day I can just like those guys and just go to go to the restaurant and say hey I need some beef and alcohol and that's like right like everybody knows like Ardyang Yoro like some beef and alcohol that's made me like a wild wild person or wild like grown up I guess awesome that's a good note to end that one on the the beeper just went there um so our last of our four stories it's another one of the massive classics it's a、uh, The, I'm just going to call it the Two Monkeys chapter from、uh, Journey to the West, Shiyoji.、Uh, Tianqi, this is your one. But first, do you want to introduce your podcast? Yeah. So I am Tianqi, and、uh, my podcast is called Stories from a Chinese Studio. I kind of took that name from Pusoning because Pusoning writes, you know, the strange tales from a from a, from a studio.、Uh, the strange tales from. Uh, anyways. Um, So、uh, I did my master's、uh, in pre-modern Chinese literature,、um, and while COVID hit, I realized that I have a lot of time on my hand, and I really want to do something to to make sure that the papers that I wrote、um, during my my master's time、uh, get to be out in the light. Some way, not just in the basement, hidden somewhere, like with the great books, or, or in my professor's like deleted, <laughs>、um, you know, trash folder <laughs> of submitted student work. And、um, I grew up in China, actually,、um, where I lived most of my childhood is really close to Yunhegong in Beijing, which is the Lama Temple, and really close to Ditan,、um, which is the the temple of.、Uh, Not Temple of Heaven, but the Temple of、uh, Earth, I guess.、Um, so I was exposed to a lot of like traditional Chinese culture and literature. And of course,、um, when I was doing the podcast, I I kind of got a little bit lazy. I、uh, I put out my 
my uh, podcast mostly like in a more written form that are uh, extracted from my papers. Um, but I hope that my audience like it. I guess it's a it's a unique type of podcast. It's very very academic ish, um, but maybe people like it. Um, and I picked uh, Journey to the West because it's a I think it's among the most popular uh, Chinese literature um, out there in, in the West. And there's a lot of big TV adaptions, uh, let alone like the cartoons and the animated uh, stories all, um, all over since like the 80s that they did the, they did the TV show. Um, and I found it to be uh, the the work that influenced me the most growing up, not just because every kid watched the TV show, um, but also because it really teaches you like how to get over the difficult journey, the journey that is life really. Like you, he, he encountered Jojo Bashinan, the 81 uh, difficult, uh, like dif- difficult monsters or something. Uh, and we in our lives also encounter all these different um, different difficult um, times and how we toughen it up and then go through them. It's, um, it's what I get from it. Um, and um, yeah, I, I just really like you know, interpreting stories and sharing it and getting feedback from my friends who listen to it. And um, I'm hoping actually to do interviews with like other podcasters like you guys. So I would really love, I just started it last November. So it's very like, new um, to, to just talk about like how Chinese literature influenced you or like your favorite stories and all that. Um, and I picked, I think the most existential chapter out of all of Journey to the West, I feel. Uh, the, the real and the fake monkey um, and I think that in in you know TV shows in literature there's a lot of kind of uh, like um, stories about oh there's a there is this this person the self and then suddenly there's a twin or there is um, another of him and we can't distinguish like who is who and that gives us kind of an existential crisis. And I feel it's also kind of philosophical in a sense, and also filled with conspiracy theories um, that people often, when they, when they talk about this chapter, they, they would ask, the first question would be, oh, so did Sun Wukong, the real Sun Wukong actually kill the, the fake Sun Wukong? Or uh. the fake Sun Wukong that, <gasps> took over <laughs> and we were just watching the fake Sun Wukong and we didn't know that it was actually you know the fake one that, that went along um, and in, in a more like meta sense it, if it gives us a sense of like disorientation and like confusion and anxiety just just from the the fact that oh this character that we so strongly believe um in the goodness or the loyal, uh, the loyalty of, of the Monkey King to the master that he somehow had an idea of, of ruling or like taking on the journey all by himself. Um, kind of, if you, if you see it in a corporate sense, like if, if this um, person that started the, started Apple with Steve Jobs um, and 
while they were they were doing the company, and suddenly he he decided that oh, I am not gonna work for you anymore. I'm gonna um, go on my own journey, and I'm gonna take over. I will start my own company, um, and I will recruit um, the people that are just the copycat of what you have, like my my previous coworkers, which is what happens in the story in some way. Um, and uh, so, and in the sense of like the question of authenticity, like if you if you really see authentic um, self or representation of the Monkey King or or is it uh, is it an illusion that we're seeing? So all these kind of like questions that you can get from from just a very like short and simple story. Um, should should I introduce the story? I guess. Um, yeah, if you want to, like you've introduced the kind of big theme, but maybe you could summarize the plot for anyone yeah. who's not read it. Yeah, definitely. So uh, the journey to the west is um, about uh, four four creatures. Three of them are animals, sort of, um, and one is the the Buddhist master. We call him, and uh, they together are on a journey to uh, go to India to to get the ultimate the scripture, the Buddhist scripture. Um, in and, the this specific chapter, can you for people who've not yeah. are not familiar, yeah. can you summarize the chapter's plot? Yeah. So. In the chapter that is the real and fake Sun Kong, um, our major like um, our major character Wu Kong, who's a monkey, um, was really sad uh, because he killed um, he killed a bunch of um, like the the thieves uh, for his master. Um, they were stealing him and trying to kill him. Um, and then his master, of course, being a Buddhist, is really um, angry and um, that he was killing people. So he he said, oh, I'm not going to have you. You you should leave me, basically. And then he was really sad. And then he ran away to to the god, to the god and say, you know, I'm going to I'm going to argue about this. I'm sad. And then um, he's he's other to to uh, the the student. The students, I guess, the the pupils, um, they went off to find the monkey, but instead they um, they encountered this monkey that is called Liuer. Um, they didn't know that it's not the monkey king himself because he looks just like him, um, but then he acted in a very ruthless and brutal way, um, and um, um, that that other monkey. Um, cha- uh, took the master um, as hostage and then the other pupils run after him and realize that um, the fake monkey has gone back to the hometown um, of the real monkey and started the whole a whole um, I guess a whole monkey uh, group over there and, um, and and he in the scene he brought out, um, the exact copycat of the two pupils and um, told them that, you know, I, I realized that, you know, why am I doing all this for, for master? I should be the one who is, um, who is on the journey on my own with, with my, you know, my helpers here to get the scripture. Um, 
and then the two monkeys fight and fight, and they went to the Guanyin Pusa, which is usually the the goddess that solves all the problems with the with the uh, monsters that they encounter in the journey. But then this time, even the goddess couldn't tell the real one from the fake one. So and then they fight and fight, and then um, in the end, the fight to the to the top god, the ultimate answer um and then he says okay um you're the real one and he's a fake one and then the real one killed off the fake one and then they happily continue the journey basically yeah i'm gonna be sneaky and squeeze an anecdote in before i start the clock again um so again maybe it's token westerner perspective so growing up uh, I had almost no exposure to Chinese stuff except maybe British Chinese takeaway food. And then once every few years in school, they teach us about Chinese New Year. They teach us a uh, Konghei Fa Choi, the Cantonese blah, blah, blah. Um, but I had a very weird, there was a weird moment on UK television where one of the TV versions of Journey to the West was appearing on one of our uh, private channels, Channel 4. This was back when we only had five channels, BBC One, BBC Two, ITV, which were your sort of mainstream ones. And then four and five, which tended to have more strange stuff. And I think it it wasn't it wasn't the one that's famous in China that made it over here. I think it was the Japanese version, although I'm not really sure. Um, and it became a bit of a cult, like a popular subculture thing, because people who didn't have the context thought thought it was this really surreal, random thing. And my dad heard a little bit about it and he showed it to me. And I was like, what the hell is this? Why is there a pig? Why is there a monkey? Why is the makeup and costuming so bad? Um, I just didn't know what to make of it. I thought it was some surreal Chinese or Japanese thing. And then I went to live in China and I think I heard about it before I saw it, but I was trying to describe the show and asking my Chinese colleagues and friends, do you guys know this? And they're like, yeah, of course we know this. This is our childhood, we love this thing so much. And I was like, what, really? And then finally I saw the the classic adaptation everyone loves, the TV version from the 80s. And suddenly it was in context and it was still a bit weird, but I was like, yeah, I see I see why people love this. It's, um, and when, when I learned the plot as well, it's such a archetypal, perfect adventure story and plot. There's probably parallels in every world culture, the quest where you encounter many hardships to find something. So again, I know I keep saying it, but it's not too hard for me to relate. Although I still don't understand why there's a pig, a pig guy, but Mm. whatever. Um, So yeah, I'll start the timer. Um, Does anyone want to jump in first with a question? I guess I can answer the pig part. Um, A lot of people interpret the the different you know the animals which is the monkey king of course and the pig and the shang. so he is he's sort of yeah like kind of human-like but not really um he's the one carrying all the all the doing all the labor carry stuff and then of course there is also bai long ma the the horse um that Tang Sung, the 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 monk, the monk rides on, um, and they say that it represents uh, different parts of human nature. Like for example, the pig um, is you know the laziness and the right. the greedy the greedy pig, and then the monkey king is kind of the 
the brave part, but also the um, the, the kind of the, uh, the one that Im- impulsive. Yeah. Okay. It's like the impulsive, yeah. rebellious, uh, easy to be irritated type that you need to contain. And yeah, yeah. And I, that's why in this uh, chapter, you know, you really see that the Monkey King kind of as a if you interpret it as like part of the human nature, he rebels. He really thought that he could take over. He could he could be the one, you know, not the follower, but the leader, sort of. Um, right. Yeah. I actually have my own um, amateur psychoanalysis or something here, because I think whenever you have a doppelganger, it's just inviting you to analyze it. And a thing that struck me I saw a, a movie version of Journey to the West. That was the first time I really saw it properly. And the thing that struck me was this monkey is like hyper-violent. He's, un- he's unstoppably powerful. He's like a Dragon Ball Z character. He, you can't stop him. And he, like, he seems to enjoy or not care about how much damage he causes. He's kind of, mm-hmm. I found him kind of scary in a way because he's almost got no weaknesses, it seems. At least... Uh, he's got the headband, but his enemies just can't stop him. So I found him kind of like freaky, coupled with the fact that it's a guy dressed up as a monkey. Yeah, it scared me. So um, and then reading this story, I was like, when's he going to do something mean and violent? And right at the end, he squishes this tiny helpless monkey with his stick. Um, and I was like, right, it feels like maybe because I, I worked out from before the start of the story, he's killed people and he feels bad about it. And maybe this is my bad understanding of the character, but it's like he's realized killing is wrong and he's hating this violent side of himself. So, and then in a way, if we're using metaphors, he's kind of split in two or he's facing his shadow violent Mm -hmm. self, but he realizes, no, I am the hyper-violent guy. This is who I am. Bang. Do you think that's bullshit or do you think I'm I'm seeing something? No, that's actually like a very very valid and actually a lot of people think that um mm. that it, it is actually a, a split within the monkey king himself of course um and there are two reasons for that at least that i i see uh one is clearly from the text um that he says uh the r so when the the buddha is seeing these two he's not saying that this is two monkeys but two hearts like the, the two parts of a, a single heart, basically, is which you know obviously uh, we interpret it as the the two sides. One side is the obedient, the good, the good side, and another side is like the try try to be like violent and kill people side. Um, and another one is the the fact that um, the goddess, like the mere god, kind of not not the mere god, but the the lower level god couldn't tell but the the really high level god could see it right away that uh which one is real and which one's fake is kind of i think because the god knew all along that this is a plot that the monkey king is putting on himself kind of that he he put on this whole show um not the fact that like the other monkey is like the, the monkey that he pulls the hair and created one, but but the the sense that um, you know as a kid you you really wanted to steal the candy and then you you stole it 
and then and then you kind of regret and and you want to kind of undo that and then the undo part is but then your parents knew all along of course and like <laughs> you who ate the candy of course and the um so that's i guess that i i definitely agree with the interpretation i, I sometimes worry that i'm like i embrace my nerdy or dorky side too much like obsessing over Chinese lit like this podcast like I'm I'm not even Chinese I don't live in China anymore maybe I should let go and move on but then I have this the similar moment where I'm like no I'm reasonably good at this and it's fairly core to what I do let's go further down the hole just lean <laughs> so into it right yeah yeah uh Yang and John do you guys want to say anything uh yeah I mean just you know, kind of go back to like what you're saying talk, we're talking about the tv shows and you know just to show like how influential those were you know like i cannot think of these characters like independent of the way they were actually portrayed in the 80s tv show that um in many ways like that almost like a supersedes the way they were actually portrayed in the novel itself and you know like a point that we touched on about mm-hmm. how violent the monkey king is you know, like I think in the 80s TV show, they actually kind of, uh, you know, they send off some of the rough edges a little bit. Like he's he's nowhere near he's nowhere near as violent. He's more of a uh, merry mischief maker with some violent tendencies, you know, thrown in every now and then. <laughs> but, you know, but if you read the novel, yeah, it's, you know, he is, you know, brutally violent in some cases. I think um, not in this chapter, but I think in another chapter, uh, you know, there was a scene where they were fighting a demon and the demon actually had, you know, taken a human princess, you know, as wife, and they had two kids. And, like, the monkey can actually, like, drops those kids out from, like, from the air, from midair and, like, kills them, right? Like, just blatant violence like that, which, you know, of course, they did not show in the TV show. Um, I always thought, like, Journey to the West is kind of, of, like, the, the classic Chinese novels. I think it's the one that's best that best lends itself to TV adaptation because it's very episodic. It's got a lot of comical elements, like slapsticky comical elements. And it's always um, interesting, kind of funny to me how, you know, it's kind of tell, like has these like mess, these kind of morality or ethics or, you know, kind of these messages, uh, you know, embedded within this kind of very um, slapsticky comical telling. Yeah. Yeah. And, I guess I, I was complaining earlier or commenting on how big some of these books are, but yeah, you're, you're right. Long form storytelling and episodic structures. I, I get, is it maybe the same with Shuihu at Water Margin maybe works better as TV because it's got all these chapters. I don't know what you think about that. Yeah. Like, well, like Shuihu has like kind of like little mini story arcs, right? So like mm. Shuihu would be kind of like what modern TV is, right? Like he, he could do like a little right. mini, like 10 episode mini arcs. Whereas like um, the, uh, the Journey to the West is literally like you can see it as a weekly sitcom kind of thing, right? Because every chapter <laughs> and they're, they all follow like a similar structure too, right? Like they run into a monster, um, you know, some, some weeks like, you know, soon we'll, we'll figure out a way to beat them. But, you know, half the time it will be they have to go and call up um, Guan Yin, the Bodhisattva, um, and then like, and then like another 10% of the time they can't. You know, that's not enough or you know she's i don't know she's not available for some reason and <laughs> they'll have to go find some other god to come and save them you know it's like 
it's like it's literally like an act of every week's resolution is a literal act of god you know so it's uh yeah yeah makes a lot of sense well like um tnt mentioned like different characters in journey to the west represent like different um like, like it's like a um different um features of a person like greediness or something but why people just like Sun Wukong the most like he is he has he is the rough one he's maybe 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 because I think um the monkey key represents like the rough like the raw part of human because you know he was born from a stone and he didn't have any connections he doesn't have families he doesn't have rules it's like um so another um fictional character in chinese um mythology is like nojia i talked about in my podcast before people like nojia also because he likes to um um you know he doesn't want to be limited to the social norms and stuff but people maybe like but but nojia he has his father he has families so he has to maybe obey like the, um, you know, like he has to be loyal to the family at certain points. So in the end, he wasn't a free spirit, like a free person. But for the Monkey King, he just don't, he just represent himself. That's the 10 minutes up there. But this was going to be the part where if there is anything we hadn't talked about, we can do it now. So I guess let's just keep going with this one. On the uh, on what Yang said about... I think it's really, really uh, good that you pointed out how Monkey King came out of uh, stone. Really, he um, in the text uh, when when people are asking Wu Kong what is Wu Kong's last name or Xing, it's like or personality, kind of two ways to interpret the same word. And um, Wu Kong said, "Wu Wu Xing, I don't have a name." This is in the very, very beginning when. Uh, when people, you know, yell at me, I would not be angry. When people hit me, I would not hit back. I I don't have any personality. I don't have a last name. And then he says, I don't have a, I don't have parents. I don't have family either. And at that time, it's kind of like the pre like existent moment for for the human. I guess there is no sense of right or wrong. He doesn't have a name. There's no tag on him that says. You know, you're the monkey king, or you're you're a monkey. He is just like a infant baby, basically. And once, but once he got the name, once he got the monkey king's name, once he got a mission, um, and suddenly he has this sense of like mingliin, which is, I guess, in in English would be um, the pursuit of like kind of fame and 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 a uh, sense of purpose. Um, and then he adopted this this way of thinking that there is me and there is you, and there is other people and there is me, right? So it's kind of like he ate the apple, mm. um, and then he only has a sense of like well, evil and and good and evil, um, and he has all these per- personalities, and he can be happy and he can be sad and he can be angry and hungry and all that. Um, and once he had that, you 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 see that he started kind of like showing off his his all his skills. Um, but before that, he 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 wasn't like this, you know. Um, and the 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 monkey, the fake monkey's name is Liu Miho, and so it, six years, but it's not really six years. They um, in Buddhist like kind of um, in Buddhist 
interpretation um, in the previous chapter when Sun Wukong was uh, was visiting the the um, another Buddhist god, uh, he mentioned Liu Er, um, and then Wukong said, So uh, at the moment, there is no Liu Er. Liu Er is like six, six years, which, you know, you, you, you see it as like um, the third person kind of creeping in, like listening in. And he says, oh, it's just me. There's no like the third person um, Watergate <laughs> incident. There's nobody um, listening in. So you can, you can teach me all your knowledge. That's what he told the, the Buddha. Um, so... So, and then this comes from like the Buddhist uh, saying of Liu Er Putongma, which is, um, which, which kind of means that um, you don't share the secrets with other people. And, and in this story, of course, the, the Monkey King has Liu Er, it's because he suddenly has, has the sense of, of what if like there is another possibility. So he he is diverted into into thinking about another way of life and another life that he could lead. So I guess in in that sense, if we're really like trying to to, to carve out like the meaning behind the text, you can you can interpret it that way. And yeah, yeah Tianqi, when you were, it's amazing. Oh, sorry, go on, go on. I was gonna say when uh, Tianqi was talking about. Um, Kind of like Sun Wukong's kind of yeah, but biting the apple, kind of the loss of innocence. It reminded me of like you know early in the novel when he goes off. Yeah, when he first sets off to go in search of a master to teach him, you know, all teach him the magic and things like that. Uh, when he first encounters humans, I think the novel makes an explicit point of saying that you know he spent years drifting around the human world, but all he saw were you know greed and ambition, you know. And then it's fun, and you know, as you observe that, you know, as he became, um, once he learned his magic, like it's kind of like he almost like takes on, starts like taking on the human um, weaknesses. You know, he falls into that same trap. Um, the other thing that reminded me too, though, is that like from like throughout the novel, like a lot of times Sun Wukong, you know, would just comment on humanity or comment on you no, know, oh humans or this or that. Uh, and it reminds me of, uh, I don't know if anybody here, you know, watches Star Trek or as a Trekkie, but there's like a well-known cliche that, you know, like every Star Trek series always has to have like an alien character who serves as like an observer, like a comment commentator on the human, on human nature. And it feels like Sun Wukong is kind of playing that role here, you know, in a lot of ways, like he's like the Spock of the novel. Of all the people I thought we'd hear any of the characters compared to, I never would have guessed we'd be comparing Sun Wukong to Adam and Eve, but it makes so much sense now that you say it. Mm. Yeah, it's it's always, uh, even when there is no like moralizing, but there is always a moral tale component to, to the ancient stories, I feel. There, yeah. like, there was something... I don't yeah. think I read it. I think it was some podcast I listened to. Someone was doing their analysis of um, the, the Old Testament and they said, no, I really don't remember who it was, but no, I don't remember. But um, they were described uh, Cain and Abel, Adam and Eve's sons, as the first real humans. 
And then I think they said, then a side note, yeah, because if Adam and Eve weren't born, then they're not really humans. There's something else that hasn't been differentiated out. There's something unevolved or more, more basic or pure or something. And that sounds kind of true, like for never mind Sun Wukong, just a monkey. It's, or maybe rather than a monkey, somewhere further back in our evolutionary tree where there was something that could have gone in a dozen different ways. And it, one of those ways was, was us. Yeah, I don't, I don't have a point there, but it, you're making me see Journey to the West in a completely different light. It's, it's blowing my mind slightly. Just, yeah, I, I guess it's just like the text itself. It's it, you can interpret it in so many ways, and and there are four characters too. I I feel like um, with with novels, um, or with novels like this, with with a bunch of character, uh, you you kind of can interpret it when it's like say Honglomong. There are hundreds of characters and you can interpret it as um, really like, oh, they're just one meta character or that's about you. And then all these other characters are really like showing parts of him. But I feel in Journey to the West, all these four characters are very, you can see them as distinct uh, beings and you can really trace like their personalities too, because because it's not always consistent. After this chapter, you'll observe, like I observed that um, Monkey King became much more tamed um, and more loyal and much less kind of, um, I'm not gonna listen to you master type of monkey anymore. And I think it's because, you know, he killed off that side of him, or at least he thinks that he killed off. Yeah, and why why is there such a chapter? What and like the location of it? If it's not right in the middle, um, if you if you know the the right in the middle of the uh, the very middle chapter of the whole book is the one the Tongtian Lu one where they kind of had a had a road emerged out out from the sea and they kind of really went on to to gone on another island or another adventure and I yeah so so I guess you can't really say oh this is the turning point of of the the story or anything but it's a I guess it's an important um, chapter I think yeah all the characters go on this evolution throughout the novel and yeah Right, like at the end, the Sun Wukong does become a lot more tame, and you know, the pig, you know, who are supposed to sort of represent like the base impulses, I think, yeah, he improves, you know, to a degree. Um, we don't really know. We don't, see the thing, like, we don't really know much about Sha He Shang because he never gets any lines. Like, I, I always would like to see a retelling of the story <laughs> from like his perspective. You know, like <laughs> I'm the guy who's carrying the luggage, and I'm watching like all these other folks, these uh, my other companions, like go on crazy adventures and. You know, like he's just observing them and like, oh yeah, I'm just carrying all the luggage for you guys. You think in his head he'd be ranting at them? Right. Yeah. It's kind of like the Hufflepuff <laughs> of the Force. And then there's the off-Broadway show I went to see is called Puffs. 
which is just the Hufflepuff story, which is very <laughs> short, of course, not almost at all. And yeah, but Shahoshan doesn't have like a presence, strong yeah. presence. But maybe he benefits from a TV version then, because at least he's visually present, even if he's not speaking. Yeah. A lot of times he's like the peacemaker, I guess. Yeah, when 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 um, so we come in Jubajie, guy starts bickering. There's some like conspiracy theory, like Shahukhan was like a spy <laughs> or whatever by the Buddha, like the eye, like to watch them. <laughs> I love theories like that. It's funny because in in the end, <laughs> in the very end, only two of them out of the four got the Jinzun, so actually became like real. I guess uh, real yeah. god, yeah, became real god. It's it's Monkey King and the uh, the master, actually. And the other two got kind of a, a you know also yeah. got a certificate, <laughs> but not. Okay. That was one thing I was gonna. I had a question uh, for anyone who wanted to answer. I remember again token Westerner question. I remember reading. I just arrived in China. I had the October holiday. I didn't know didn't know where to go, but I had a history book. Which was China history, so the whole country's history for thousands of years in one chunky book, and I read it, and my mind was blown at various points.、Uh, but one was the idea that maybe the thing that kept the idea of China together for so long was the bureaucracy, the world's oldest bureaucracy, and how that makes it a little bit different from like feudal system in Europe and、mm-hmm. so on, because it's mer- meritocratic. Um, and I kind of I wondered when they had these two monkeys had their dispute and they needed to solve it, they just escalated it up the bureaucracy of heaven, or even if we want to be postmodern, the customer service of heaven, just trying to escalate it to the management. I don't know if there's anything in that, but it just struck me like, oh, we just need to. <laughs> we're not going to go right to the boss because we can't we can't bother him or her, but let's. Yeah, let's go to the first god up the chain. Yeah, yeah, because definitely in Taoism there are this hierarchy thing, and also in Buddhism. I don't know, maybe it's like the Tao Taoism was like in, influenced influenced by the Buddhism hierarchy, because you know the hierarchy thing、right. in India society. I, I, it almost feels like they were doing this in this chapter just to pad out the chapter some, because you know in other <laughs> chapters like they have no problem going straight to like Guan Yin first or. And then, like, and or right to like the Buddha, and it's almost like here they were intentionally like going to all these other less powerful entities, right? Like because you know he did go to、um, the Jade Emperor, you know, who who was already established like previously in the novel. Like the the gods in his service were are not all that particularly powerful compared to Sun Wukong and Guan Yin, and so. Yeah, it's always it's kind of interesting to me, like the you know the people he sought out, you know, to try to tell them apart. Yeah, so why 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 go to all those places when you could just, I mean, go to Guan Yin and okay, she can solve it, then just go to the Buddha. Maybe he didn't want it solved. Maybe he just wanted to right, drag out the、right. fighting for as long as he could because that's his <laughs> that's, that's where he go, gets、right. his kicks. I feel like it's. Buddha is also like the ultimate Buddha. It's also doing kind of a PR thing because at the, at the scene, right, the two monkeys are here, and then there's all the god watching them, and and he's kind of like doing the judging part. But 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 also 
if he had knew all along, you know, who is who, and this is like a show that the Monkey King put on or something like that, all these conspiracy theories. Eh? Um, but yeah, he 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 didn't say that. Oh, it's 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 all you or it's all you or like who is evil and who is good. He didn't really say that kind of. So I thought it was interesting. Yeah, I like Mason who was on earlier. I've been a teacher, and I remember sometimes your strategy is if your pupils are misbehaving and they're digging a hole for them from themselves, you let them dig the hole just a little bit further so that when you come in and sort it out, it makes you look better. So I can makes a lot of sense strategically. <laughs> yeah, and you kind of let them do do the killing themselves, not the not you kill the fake monkey. You let the real monkey kill the fake monkey. Mm -hmm. Yeah, delegation of tasks. <laughs> Did you guys really want to say anything about any of the other stories? The Water Margin chapter, the Pusongling story, uh, Weaver Shu's story. Is there anything you were, we just, the time ran out and you didn't get to ask or say? I have one thing. Um, I kind of noticed this. Um, I think it jumped out at me most in the Weaver Shu story, where the two guys become sworn brothers and because in my podcast, I've mostly looked at modern Chinese literature and the other classic literature I've done, I had read was Hong Lo Meng. I don't remember any sworn brothers in that. It's mostly a guy in his... Um... <laughs> well, you, you will see a lot of sworn brothers in, in several, margin, I mean, <laughs> three kingdoms, like... the romance of three kingdoms. No, I remember because I, I listened yeah, well, to the first right, few yeah. episodes of John's Sanghua podcast. And yes, now that you mention it, lots of sworn brothers bring themselves in but this is a new concept to me um i never encountered that living in china because obviously i was living in modern china not not the ming dynasty or whatever so i don't really know much about this concept i guess it popped up when i, I read the first uh, the 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 english translation the first book in the translation of condor heroes jin yong's wuxia story that had some quite important swearings of brotherhood but I don't know if there's much, I, I wouldn't know what to say about it because I don't know much about it. But there's, yeah, so it appeared in that story. And then in all the other three stories we've got, there's a lot of bros going on adventures together, um, which again, I guess that that's not just a Chinese thing. That's in a lot of stories. Is there anything we can say about it though? That can we analyze it much? I feel like Chinese people, like even today, there are, there are, like sworn brothers but if you go to like a feast or dinner with Chinese people when they get drunk they probably call you brothers yeah. or like we are <laughs> brothers and stuff because like it's not like in English you call your siblings brothers and you call other relatives you call them cousins because in Chinese you just call brothers like if they're just a guy you'd call them like you're in the same generation right. you call them brothers but I guess sworn brothers is more serious you you just try, you can sacrifice for their lives. I think like, you know, like Lord of the Rings was, you know, a Chinese yeah. tale, like, you know, Frodo's whole entourage would be sworn brothers, you know, like that, that's similar re type of relationship just by a different name, maybe. Right, ride together, die together. Uh, yeah, exactly. Right. Yeah. There's always like a right of, of like becoming brothers. You, you have some like bloodshed usually, uh, like you, 
you kind of cut your hand a little, a little bit or something like that, and then you guys mix your mix the blood, blood together, <laughs> symbolizing that you're actually like you know becoming like blood brothers. Yeah, real, like brother. Yeah. So this is very funny. Very, yeah. It's it's a very like manly thing to do in a sense, masculine thing. Yeah, you don't see women. Blood too, sisters. Like, no, weird. Women are actually smart and you know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they're not so eager to die and get killed. <laughs> um, yeah. But the, yeah, the sense of like a guanxi <laughs> in a in a very shallow way. Like you always need some people to to help you out when in time of uh, emergency. Mm. To send you masks when there is like a COVID happening. I guess your your brothers would be the ones who send you masks. <laughs> yeah, I can't I can't speak for all of Western people, but like my I have a group of friends who were friends with me from high school. I I did have a group of friends who I knew from like nursery, so kindergarten, but um, they kind of ostracized me sadly about halfway through high school. But it means the friends I have now. And they're all guys, although we all have girlfriends now, so that we have, you know, there are maybe some women in our circle now, but it's really a boys club. And we probably all in our heads have a similar idea that we're brothers, especially during lockdown. We've done Zoom calls together. We ha I don't have we saved each other's lives? Probably not. But I think a lot of us would do something similar for each other. But maybe this is a British thing. Um, we would never say it. It's we're too repressed. Yeah, mm. maybe it's mm. a guy. Maybe if we were extroverted Americans, we might be more outspoken. Like we might call each other bro or pal, but it doesn't really mean like brother. <laughs> but I think inside there is something similar. We just don't say it for better or for worse. Yes, if there is alcohol involved, <laughs> it would be. <laughs> mm -hmm. But it's the same, yeah. I mean, the, the brothers in China always have like right. baijiu, right? Or some kind of alcohol. Well, yeah, I mean, we, on our Zoom calls, we did the first ones we did. We would drink together because it's what what we how we used to socialize. But it doesn't it, it didn't feel good. So now we have pretty mostly mostly sober Zoom calls. But yeah, it's very true. I think so. My, my girlfriend, she's uh, she's. She's from the enemy nation. I'm Scottish. She's English, but she's not really been exposed to much Chinese or East Asian stuff. But she does listen to a K-pop group, uh, Blackpink, and she would. I think she explained to me one time. Oh yeah, they call each other sister or big sister, little sister, auntie. And I was like, yeah, yeah, it sounds familiar. Because living in China, I had to learn Google Didi, Jia Jia Mei Mei. Um. And I, I, from what I was told, in Korea they are even they go for that stuff even more, like using the correct family address. But I have no firsthand experience of that. It's like as a, as an outsider to it. On one hand, I'm like, oh yeah, that's. I wish I could. I wish I had something I could do like that with my friends. On the other hand, it's like it feels like I'd be going all in too much, calling you know someone you don't really know, auntie or uncle. I can relate, but I also can't, I don't know. Yeah, I guess in a sense, like when when nowadays people call 习, like 习大大, right? The, 
uh, and then previously, like when it was Hu Jintao as the the prime minister, uh, the the president, we call him like Hu Ye Ye or something. We always give like these people kind of a, a relative's name, like Ma Yun Jack Ma as well. Like we we call him Baba in China, <laughs> so it's like Daddy. But in in the U.S., I feel it's a Kind of a sort of different connotation when you call like Elon Musk your daddy. Oh, no. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. No, we don't do anything like that in Britain. But I, the one, I think the one time in English you'll come across that is references to Joe Stal- Joseph Stalin. Uh, for some reason, they would call him Uncle Joe. God knows why. But maybe that's better suited for like these strongman authoritarian leaders. I don't know. Like, does anyone in Taiwan call? Oh, what she? I've forgotten her name. But do you think in Taiwan they call her Mama or Auntie? Taiwan. Yeah, Taiwan. I don't know. I don't know. Yeah. Maybe not. We the leader of Scotland, our first minister Nicola Sturgeon. No one calls her Auntie. Oh, she she does look like a bit like a a Sugalan Ai, but um, <laughs> we do call her Nikki. So I think the maybe the equivalent in the UK is giving people an、uh, informal name like. People used well. Some people still do call Boris Johnson Bojo. It's maybe a similar thing. Bojo, just a,、uh, just a term of familiarity, I think, right? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't know. I don't know if there's a similar thing in the U.S. Like, did people call Obama Barry? Barry Obama. People <laughs> <laughs> call Bernie Sanders like kind of Bernie. Just Bernie.、Yeah. I think it's just yeah. you know, like if you、Bernie. call somebody like by the first name, right? Yeah. Yeah.、Mm. Yeah. Even your family、mm. members, you don't really call you auntie,、okay. auntie. Oh no,、Just、I could never get away with、so. that. Um, my the word I have、yeah. an auntie called Anne, so she's Annie Annie. <laughs> <laughs> And I have an uncle. Actually, her big brother is he's called Ian, Uncle Ian, or just Unclean. <laughs> yeah, maybe like wait. So you call you auntie, auntie. In- yeah. Yeah, I think、yeah. at least in Scotland and the UK, it would maybe it depends on the family, but in my experience, you could call them. It's yeah, some more like Chinese, Uncle Ian, Auntie Anne,、yeah. Uncle Dan. Yeah, yeah. But you you do use their name, like for my grandparents, I would just call them Grandpa, Granddad, Granny. But my uncles and aunties, it would it would the title then the name. So I guess yeah, hadn't thought about that much before. I guess the the single child generation would change it all. I mean, I'm I'm a single、mm. child, oh, and I don't have brothers and sisters. Me too. When my kid grow up, they wouldn't have like many auntie aunt aye, right? So I don't have sisters.、Yeah. Hmm. My mum actually, I think past generations in the UK had a thing where your friends of your mother often would be your aunties. And as a kid, this was never really explained to me. So I thought I had a really huge family. I thought I had aunties in loads of different parts of the country, and then realized most of them were just my mom's friends. But I think that's fading. That seems like an older generation thing. Is that also the sense, like you know, you have blood sworn brothers because all these, like your mother's friends, your these aunties, will come help you in case you know your mother is. Traveling on the business, 
Uh-huh. Yeah, I was going to say that. It's probably like a yeah. small sisterhood. Yeah, <laughs> uh, my mom, uh, she divorced when I was eight. And her all those aunties, I think, came into effect and helped her out for a few years. And then when she remarried, she had a lot of bridesmaids because it was all the it was all the aunties. So, yeah, I think you're, you're right. Women, women, like helping women, like emotional support, mm. mostly. Yeah, makes me jealous. Yeah. Um, I think I'm running out of things to say about the stories, and it's getting it's getting close to 11 p.m. here. So I guess I should let you guys go. Yeah. Thank you again. Thank you so much for organizing yeah, thank you. this. Yeah, it was great. Yeah. yeah thank you. It's yeah. Fun. Um, I'm glad it went well. All right, and that brings us to the end of the show. Well, I've already said it was a fun chat, and I'll say it again. Thank you for the amazing chat to all my guests and I hope that you the listeners are able to check out their uh, various podcasts links to all of those will be in the show notes of course all that remains now is for me to do this, the the plugs at the end so first up I'll plug my uh, Patreon the show's Patreon because there are some quite interesting rumblings there just now so I am planning to do a Taiwan season several episodes on translated fiction from from Taiwan and I've announced or listed what those works are going to be or very likely going to be on a bonus episode on the patreon feed and i've done a like a one hour patreon episode giving my preliminary thoughts on one of those books it's the membranes by chertawe so that's um it's a very interesting case it was written in 1995 it's been published in translation uh, now and it's without exaggerating or kind of trying to twist things to hit interesting marketing keywords, it is queer sci-fi. Queer, eco-dystopian, existential sci-fi. And I'm not, yeah, like I said, I'm not, I'm not twisting the book to hit those keywords. That's a good, those, that is a good description of the book. So it's as interesting as it sounds. Um, so yes, just to restate, if you'd like to help support the show, you can um, sign up for the Patreon. It's uh, one USD a month minimum. There's also buy me a coffee and uh, other places if you want to give a like a one-off contribution. Links for all those are in the support link in the show notes. Um, social media. So if you'd like to follow uh, the show, get updates, insights, and or or reach out and share your thoughts and stuff. Uh, there's three really good places to do that. There's Instagram. The podcast official Instagram account is at churchofic, T-R-C-H-F-I-C. Uh, the show's Twitter is just my own Twitter, at Angus Likes Words. I mostly tweet about Chinese fiction, sometimes other things. And if you'd like to talk to other listeners, as well as myself, uh, the show has a Discord. There's an invite link to the Discord server in the show notes. Would love to um, to get a bit more activity on there. It's generally quite quiet, but we do have the odd spark of conversation about a recent episode or a past one or or something. Um, another fun thing, uh, the show is on YouTube, and I mean, if you're already subscribing to the podcast, this is a bit of a redundant shout out. But I've been making like animated um, versions of the episodes. So basically, they'll have a little uh, squiggly spectrogram or whatever it's called, a wavelength for each speaker. That'll be a bit tricky to do for this one because so many people are speaking. And Mason uh, checks out quite early on, but I'll figure out something <laughs> for this episode. It should be interesting. And uh, last of all, it's the part where I tell you the best thing you can do for the show, and that is to spread the word. So tell your sworn brothers and your sworn sisters and your violent simian doppelganger just before you crush him with your great big death stick pole thing. 
tell him about the show, and at least, you know, before he gets crushed under its infinite weight and power, maybe he'll be able to download a few episodes and help boost my stats. That would be really appreciated. Um, so until the next mega crossover, when we talk about modern lit with some modernists, <laughs> uh, 再见!